2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
1: Hi, good evening and thank you very much to the LRB Bookshop for having us here um, and for this terrific display of This Is Not A Border, which we hope will become chaotic later on um, (laughs) and not be so beautiful. Um, And thank you very much, all of you, for being here on such a lovely... um, London evening. So um, we're going to kind of talk amongst ourselves for a bit and uh, and then open the floor to to a discussion. If I can give you just a tiny bit of background. Palfest this year uh, celebrated or marked anyway its 10th anniversary and this was one of the of the ways, or perhaps the principal way in which, in which we did that. And of course, we're tremendously grateful to Bloomsbury for having brought out the book. Um, and I also want to give a special thanks to Charles Buchan, my, my agent at the Wiley Agency, because when he, Um, realized that I was about to sign (coughs) that letter that you have to sign for publishers that kind of takes all the responsibility on yourself for anything that's anywhere in the book. He kind of said, no, 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 that's not what you do. Everybody has to sign their own letters. And then he just stepped in and there are 48 contributors to this book. So um, he was in correspondence with all of them, getting the paperwork done. And that was all done pro bono. So um, that was a wonderful act of solidarity and um, a special thanks to him. So Palfest is a travelling literary festival. We dreamed it up uh, 10 years ago and we've been doing it once a year ever since. Jeremy and uh, Rachel are both Palfestivalians and um, Plus, because they both came on the festival more than once and indeed went back on their own account to do writing workshops, which we'll be hearing more about. And Bashir is a comrade and friend, and we're very grateful that he's joined us tonight. So uh, Palfest is... Um, when we conceived it, we also realized that there were certain things that it had to do. Its, its aim was twofold. It was, um, it was born of realization that people in Palestine were not looking just for aid and um, that kind of material solidarity, but we're looking for ways of continuing to be part of whatever great conversations were happening in the world. And, um, and ten years ago, um, there were very, very few people who were going there, so the idea was to take, to take writers and artists and cultural workers particularly from the West, really, um, to go and do literary events there. So we never build it as a fact-finding mission or even as a solidarity mission, but we said, would you come and do the kind of event that you do in any city in the world, but do it in Palestine? And because of the particular circumstances, uh, like the Israeli checkpoints and so on, it was a traveling festival, so that every single morning they would pack their bags, check out of their hotels, get on the bus, and travel. Most often going through a checkpoint and then showing up somewhere to do seminars in universities or to do literary events. Of course, along the way, our participants then got... Um, a an experience that they would not otherwise have got because they lived as much as possible like a Palestinian holder of a West Bank ID. And because they were there to work, they got to meet people and they got to feel what the, the, the texture of life there was was really like. Um, so, yeah, so that's really, that's really it. And anything else can come out in, in the discussion. So I thought that we would start, because, because Bashir... Um, Ran. Isn't in book because I don't know where he's gone now. But he—he <laughs> <laughs> um, he has very—he's um, <laughs> taken this very seriously, and he's very kindly prepared a a, a sort of short um, overview. I think of I don't know of what, but he's going to tell us <laughs> <that>. <laughs> something relevant. <okay. laughs>
3: Sorry, I'm trying not to sweat here. I had to run. It's okay, you can sweat. He's been
0: running
1: from...
3: uh... I've been running in the (laughs) the wrong direction, (laughs) I
2: think.
1: So
3: thank you, Hadaf, and thank you, Jeremy, um, for inviting me. So I thought that I'd, I'd begin by reading two quotes, which helped me think about this is not a border, and I think what it aims to achieve. The first quote is from Jean Genet. This is a text this is not from the text but he wrote a very important book which hadaf introduced a while ago a very beautiful introduction called prisoner of love as a tribute to palestinian radical challenge and the second quote is from adorno from minima moralia and i thought i'd combine them and, and think about them as a way of thinking about the volume so first genei said, I'm drawn to peoples in revolt because I myself have the need to call the whole of society into question. Adorno said, slightly more convoluted style, he said, and there is no longer beauty or consolation except in the gaze falling on horror, withstanding it, and in unalleviated consciousness of negativity, holding fast to the possibility of what is better. So Adorno is always seen as a political pessimist, while Genet is regarded as a sort of a streetwise radical, an optimist who enjoys the music of everyday revolt. But what I want to suggest is that these two positions are not as different as they seem. Both hold out the possibility for a reconciled future. So let me first say what strikes me about what you can describe as Genet's strategy. First, that a celebrated external revolt becomes his own, that other revolutions work themselves back into domestic European ones, and that we share with people we think are different from us a common conception of freedom and revaluation. What strikes me about Adorno's strategy is its recognition of some core truth of what he would describe as late capitalism. That contemporary society is unjust and destructive, that to negate it is to withstand its rapacious power and actively refuse to conform, that in consequence this is essential for carving out the possibility of what he would see as a human future. So I invoke both Jine and Adorno here because I think they are crucial for formulating strategies of hope and strategies of justice in Israel Palestine. I also believe that this is exactly what Ahdaf hopes to achieve in Palfest, and if I'm wrong, she can correct me, because she's here. (laughs) So what then does one do with the daily injustice of Israel's permanent conquest? How to respond to Israel's cruel subjugation of a whole people? There's much in Swift's volume that illuminates and instigates both thought and action. I would like to pause briefly over two contributions which struck me. The first is by Jeff Dyer, an image, and the second is by Jamal Mahjoub. what we talk about when we talk about Palestine. I found them extremely helpful in capturing the problems raised by Palfest. So Dyer writes about an image of a bloody father kneeling and holding his outstretched wounded daughter during Israel's war on Gaza in 2014. It captures the high civilian costs of Israel's war. It reminds Dyer of another, older image, Don McCullen's image of a, what he describes as a Vietnamese man crouching with his back to a wall during a blood-soaked, sorry, with his back to a wall holding a blood-soaked girl injured in the wake of a U.S. attack on Huey in 1968, end of description. What worries Dyer is exactly what worries John Berger in his essay of 1972, Photographs of Agony, that seeing an image of suffering may well induce re- resignation rather than spare action. Berger rejects what he calls, quote, our own moral inadequacy. In order to redeem the suffering that is frozen in the photo, something he believes, has to be done. The image should compel us, Berger argues, to confront our own, these are his words, lack of political freedom. In other words, Vietnam demands a political response. The Palestinian image makes the same demand on Dyer, and he concludes in the following terms, and I'm quoting again. Could it be that In spite of everything, he says, in a situation that seems hopeless, when Palestinians are dependent on the political intervention of others, we are left looking to them, to the powerless, for hope. End of quote. This is a very powerful idea. That to anticipate is only human. That what the Israelis have not managed to do is eliminate the Palestinian capacity to confront horror that everyday Palestinians withstand Israel's cruel project and hold out for a better future. Dara sees all that, and importantly, brings it home. I don't want to give the impression that this is not a border, is uncritical of the Palestinians. It neither romanticizes them, nor fails to critically engage with their agency, however restricted that agency is. Jamal Mahjoub minces no words when he says... Quote, nobody wants to think too hard about the fate of a people who appear to be doing their best to undermine their own cause. Suicide bombs, rocket attacks, stabbings. None of it plays well on the global media stage. Mahjoub does, however, think about the Palestinians. And he does affirm a very powerful truth about Palestine. And I'm going to quote his concluding thought by way of concluding this. Um, attempt to think about the volume. The wonder, he says at the end of his piece, is that there is not more violence. The remarkable thing to see is that there are many who still believe in working towards a peaceful outcome through unarmed protest, through theater, through art, poetry. All those who have chosen to believe against all odds that peace with justice is still possible. That it is the, that is, he says, the true miracle of Palestine. That is the real miracle. For all our sakes, we should believe in it. He concludes. What Mahjoub registers in his piece are tones of what he would describe as what he describes as a unifying common humanity that can allow us to rise above our differences. He says, very beautiful phrase. There are these are the same tones that Edward Said also invoked in the volume, heard and also articulated himself a universal justice and a common human project, both for the sake of Palestine and to curb global barbarism, to curb what Haddaf Swaif dubs in her wonderful piece on Jerusalem as one, one people's ihlal of another, one people's substitution of another, the destructive logic of we instead of you. This volume, I think, testifies... To a basic fact, Palestinians have many good friends around the world. With such committed friends, their chances of achieving justice in the future are are much better. I think, despite Israel's relentless colonial appetite, and despite the Palestinian elite's own cynical embrace of their oppressors, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, to pick up on one um, on 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 one um, aspect of uh, Palestinian life or the Palestinian struggle that uh, that Bashir mentioned, I want to turn to Jeremy, um, and. Um, you, you'll have heard, I mean, the, an expression that's very often used about Palestine and the Palestinians is sumud. And sumud is a kind of, uh, is, is, a, is resilience. Is a resilience that, um, let's say that one of the things that, that, that is very, um, impressive and very touching when you go to Palestine and, for me was completely unexpected the first time i went because the first time i went i thought i was going to see like complete misery and uh, and and destruction and and what surprised me was that people were determined to go about their daily lives with uh commitment and with hope and with grace so you would be at a university and the kids would be having elections and they'd be really engaging with your seminars and workshops and they'd be playing basketball. And you just had to raise your eyes and there would be the settlement sort of just in the distance, bristling and waiting. And yet they carried on. And just yesterday, I'm not going to talk forever, but yesterday mm-hmm. on Twitter there were images of... Um, of how in Jerusalem, a family of uh, streets, sort of artists and musicians, had revived the tradition of Ramadan parties. So after breaking the fast at sunset, they would take music out into the streets. And there were these images of sort of hundreds of people following these musicians and singing along. This is in a city that is so embattled and so threatened. Um, and, and that is really quite amazing. So, Jeremy... Yeah. In your article, you've gone back and you've taught creative writing workshops and um, in one of your pieces you, you, your description of the young people and their engagement with the creative writing tasks that you gave them really, for me, speaks to, to, to that.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, um, I did uh, several years teaching uh, under the auspices of Powerfest but the first time that we got involved in this, I was a guest of Palfest, we were on tour and each of the writers was asked to give a work, workshop, actually, actually we were asked to give them in pairs uh, this was at Bears 8, one of them was uh, and another at Janine and Janine had been through a, a very rough period indeed during the second intifada it had put up a tough struggle it had also been a place where there was a, a lot of militant and violent action including suicide bombing um, and it had taken the consequences. We went to Janine, uh, uh, um, Robin Yassin-Kasser, the novelist and I, to do a workshop, a writing workshop. And when we arrived and we started talking to the students, we thought originally that we might split them into groups and do some, you know, some kind of writing project or, or activities uh, um, probably at their instigation. But once we got sat down, the first thing that uh, I was asked, somebody put their hand up and said, do you take personal responsibility for the Balfour Declaration of
2: 1970?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It went on from there. Uh, About (laughs) ten minutes later, another one uh, put up her hand and said, what is it about the final solution that it should have landed on us like this absolutely kind of unfathomable problem? What do you make of that? We had to talk, talk our way through that. We got to the end of the workshop and at the end, they all came up to the table and said, we're very sorry that we had to ask you these questions. They're rough, they're unfair on you, but we we just had to put the situation to the test to see if we were all going to get on or not. Um, And they then looked after us and hosted us for lunch and it was an extraordinary occasion. But this business of putting you on the spot I found very salutary because I think it's, uh, it's good to put visitors on the spot. It is actually an aspect of hospitality to test you. On another occasion in Bears 8.
1: Well, it's taking you seriously. It's taking you isn't seriously. Isn't it? it's, 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 it's a form of sort l- of. Let's see. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, who are you? OK, you're welcome. Um, on another occasion, Robin and I were asked to do a workshop at Bears 8. Uh, and the subject, I think, was. some... Um, Yes, writing, can it affect political change? We had a lively group of students. They divided into groups. One group said, we're going to do a mime. Do you mind that? And I said, yeah, I do mind that quite a lot. This is a, it's, a, it's a writing project. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, which, to which she replied, the leader of the group replied, yes, but we think that silence is a form of language. They then went away to prepare this piece. They came back and there was a raised dais, and they were, the four of them were on the dais, and they plunked down a rucksack in the middle of this stage and began to kind of move around it quite gingerly, go up to it, inspect it, appear to talk to it. You reminded me, they they wrote inscriptions on it, they withdrew, they looked at it again, they came forward, and there was a, a strange kind of dumb show with this object. At the end of the... at the the end of the uh, the little performance the rucksack detonates and that's it. They're all done for. So of course I couldn't resist asking the question what was that about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To which they replied um, it is just about having this presence in our country that is mystifying and mysterious and hostile. Whatever approach you make to it whether it's a conciliatory approach Uh, uh, An exploratory approach um, uh, an approach (coughs) in which you wish to take part in this process, it is actually going to mess you up Um, that was my experience of of workshopping, (laughs) another very hospitable
3: (laughs)
1: yeah Um, yeah Uh, I didn't
0: answer the question about Simone but I mean, about about patience patience about patience and Resilience. Oh, oh,
1: right. No, but it still is. I mean, it's basically people who are actually putting their imaginative, uh, you know, powers. I mean, using them because that's. I mean, I, I think it's hard to describe if you haven't been. But I think that basically, just getting up and doing your shopping, you know, brushing your teeth, mm-hmm. is actually an act of resistance under the circumstances um, un, under which people people live.
0: Getting to workshops, in mm. fact, is well, so, an ordeal. Yeah, you yeah
1: know. absolutely. People absolutely. had
0: to go through checkpoints. They might have been detained for three hours. If you had a four-hour morning, mm. somebody might not show until hour three because they've been detained at a checkpoint.
1: Yeah, that's a, a, a constant. Um, yeah. Um, so, Rachel, I, w- I was, um, now again, you, you can see I, I had a sort of free morning, and so I've... Well, my, my input is all from Twitter. So on Twitter <laughs> 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 this morning, um, there was there was a clip from um, a conference in New York City um, at Barkey's Hall. And it was a conference of what actually really looked like thousands of um, Orthodox Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. And it was a conference where they were basically... Objecting to and calling for battle against, uh, the Israeli decision to conscript religious students into, into the army. Mm-hmm. And the things that they, they said were remarkable. I mean, they actually said that, that Israel does not represent us, that Israel, that they, they described themselves as ha- being held hostage mm-hmm. to this idea of Judaism, which, as far as they were concerned, was completely outside what they thought of as Judaism, it was really, really militant and really interesting um, and so I, I was actually thinking of something in, in your in your essay, which was it, it, it wasn't obviously about about Jewishness, but it was about South Africanness. And it was describing, as you were growing up in South Africa, the moment when your boy cousins, to whom you were very close, actually were conscripted and had to go into the army. And you describe them coming back and speaking in telling quiet, distracted stories. Was that the the term Mm -hmm. or have I? Quiet, distracted stories about what they had seen. And I just, you know, because that's, I mean, Obviously, a, a trap into which people do fall when discussing this kind of issue is to um, to talk as if or to feel and behave as if the primary victim is the person who is being made to behave a certain way rather than the primary victim is the person who is being killed and whose land is being taken. And yet, I think that in solidarity and looking for ways forward, there is definitely um, a place for understanding that kind of problem that people find themselves faced with.
4: Well there there has to be and in relation to what you know what Bashir was looking at in, in, in both of those pieces the question of of needing to be so attentive to where where do the where do the fault lines open up where do the spaces of of hope and light sort of flash, and then what, what can they connect with? And we've got into such a, um, a, such a, a monumental and, 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 and sedimented place that thinking about internal dissent and, and the repression of not, not just political, sort of, if you like, active leftist political dissent, but but also where people take their their misprision and their awareness of of, of what's wrong in a culture that they're that they're living inside of. Mm. And I think that between two was it two thousand and nine when we
0: when we yeah. yeah.
4: between two thousand and nine and 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 over that period of time until now, I mean when I was writing my piece, I was trying to just really sort of take in all those changes that had happened. Um and, you know, not only that we'd seen incrementally and always on the ground in, in Palestine, in the West Bank, but in Israel itself. And I think that the, the, that specific question about, if you like, the Bush War, about the young soldiers, about conscription, um, for me, and the, and the South African analogy and we have to of course always be very particular and careful and examine and investigate and probe any analogy to make sure that it that it's correct and it, and it's not lazy but in this instance my memory um, was very distinctly of those boy cousins and I didn't grow up in a politically dissident or oppositional family at all quite the opposite and one and and what happened within the culture when you were children is that when the boys and it, initially it was boys, much to my embarrassment, when girls were allowed to go, my two cousins, Jane and Susan, were the first, because of course it was all, needless to say, white people, were the first two women to actually put themselves, young women to put themselves forward in, um, for, for military conscription. But anyway, the other boy cousins had gone first. Um, and, and, from, and when that happens, um, that becomes a, a, a first point where the... The awareness that, that something in a culture that is heavily censored um, and uh, where, where the boundaries are very heavily drawn, that you start to get the sense that there's something wrong. And I mean, in the intimate sphere, in the family, so that you have you have these cousins, you have these you know these people very close to you coming back and very disturbed, and because also they've been. They've been to places they shouldn't have mm. been to because the idea is that you should not be going over. As you'll remember, of course, the whole point was that nobody was going over the borders. Nobody was actually going into Angola. Nobody was going into other territories to fight. Plus, you had the issues of English of War knowing whether you had killed people or not. Mm. Or on the other hand, you had been privy. So that happened to both of my cousins. One was, had, was and, and although they both, those two both came back, only one of them really came back in the sense that, the, that that the other one Stephen just never ca- never came right and he never came right because he wasn't sure because of, fight, of, of, of what what he'd done what you know whether whether he'd actually killed somebody or not because that's the nature for sure um, whereas weirdly Andrew was a little bit better adjusted because he because he, he sort of did know but I think uh, the the to, to, to uh, you know for compression the the end conscription campaign that we had in South Africa. Which was when, at that time, when very specifically, young white men um, refused to sign up to do military service to fight, you know, for the forces of apartheid in this this civil war, um, obviously resonates very, very closely with what the position of the of the young men, and going back to the example that you just that you've just enunciated in New York. Um, the, the, of, of of young men and women, not only uh, within Israel, but of course without, yeah. um, a, a, you know, experience in, in, in terms of of, of of military conscription. And as we can see with with, with breaking the silence and and uh, and initiatives like that, it just becomes a place um, where where that where that fault line opens up and may therefore become a conversation you know with with something else, but I think the other thing to go alongside that, if I may, is just the absolute clarity of the effectiveness and importance of boycott as such an as such an important tool of of nonviolent resistance because it's it's we have so few tools at our disposal um, that we can act inact productively that that are that are peaceful, that do not kill. Mm. Mm. Um, and yes, words can be bullets to the head, and yes, you know, these things can actually cause pain and difference, but as a, but as a way of active engul- engagement mm. and, and constructive engagement and raising awareness, mm. it's such a historically rich and productive tool. And those two things run alongside each other. Mm.
1: Well, speaking of tools, tools of resistance and to, and tools of trying to make a difference. I guess, I mean, Palfest was, was born of the wish to try to make a difference. Um, and the people who were involved at the very beginning, myself and Bridget Keenan and uh, Victoria Britton, were all writers. And we had all <coughs> spent a number of years writing about the Palestinian issue. And alongside that, and 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 you know, speaking in church halls and whatever. Um, and alongside that, we were like, so, what more can one do? I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of the wish to engage actively and try to make a, a difference on the ground. And out of that was 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 born the idea of creating, a literary festival, mm-hmm. and therefore sort of like, trying to amplify whatever right. it was. That we were trying to do, and of course, and 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 Palfest was very much also born of um, um, of the idea that Edward Said put forward when he spoke of confronting confronting the 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 violence, the violence. What was it? The power, the power of um, the power of violence with the. Power of culture? No, I've got it wrong. But um, it's gone out of my head. With the culture of, with the power of culture, the the power of culture, confronting the culture of power. Yeah, and there was. I just want to find one more quote from him here, where he spoke in the Wreath Lectures, 1993. He says, "Certainly, in writing and speaking, one's aim is." trying to induce a change in the moral climate, whereby aggression is seen as such, the unjust punishment of peoples or individuals is either prevented or given up, and the recognition of rights and democratic freedoms is established as a norm for everyone, not invidiously for a select few. And so even... And and I guess that even though, I mean, we went out and we made the Palestine Festival of Literature, we then again, turn around and use writing mm. as our primary <laughs> primary tool. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, we're struggling, actually. We've called a, a sort of a halt on Palfest for a year while we try to think of what more we can do and how we can use it um, and use the capital that it has accumulated in perhaps... Ways that are bigger and and more effective, and we 're kind of like opening the door for um, ideas um, that anyone comes up with to 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 think with us about about what more can people whose work is within culture what more they can do to be more effective in in changing a situation, and actually it is really even quite hard to to write about this the situation because there's always so much more than you can put into mm. something that people can read. And also as you're writing, things are happening. So as you're writing about about something, the the piece I wrote here was about is about messages Masjid al Aqsa, the 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 noble sanctuary, the dome of the rock and so on and what's happening in it. And as I'm writing it, there is constant news yes. streams mm of um, aggressions against it, of uh, closing downs of it, of fighting, just on and on, as well as, of course, sort of news about the imminence of the building of the Third Temple, which basically means the blowing up of the Dome of the Rock. And so So you're sort of, this is all happening. It's all very dynamic. But you have to have a moment of stillness out of which to write something. Um, So... I'm just going to take it back to Jeremy for a moment because there's a strategy that particularly interested me in the way. The, the first essay that we have for you here, um, you describe the bridge. You describe the Allenby Bridge. Mm. And uh, the Allenby Bridge or the King Hussein Bridge is our point of entry always into Palestine because as we travel. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush
4: care.
1: As a Palestinian with a West Bank ID travels, it means you can't go through the airport, you have to go through Jordan, and so you have to go through Allenby. And so that's always the first point where people actually sort of like come face to face with um, the facts of, of the occupation, and it looms large in people's writing. Um, and I was just wondering whether your description, your very detailed, very kind of like heavy, static, physical description of the bridge and the terminal there it was kind of a way of, of stilling that constant motion.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was, I mean, that's a good point. I, I think it's easier to to get a kind of stillness around a historic point. I mean, I was interested in Allenby, the Allenby Bridge, partly because it was built in 1918 <coughs> by by British colonial engineers, partly because it was blown up by, by Jewish uh, uh, um, um, dissidents or so Jewish activists in in '46, and then it was rebuilt. It seemed to be a kind of historic point I'd also really crucially at the end of the 1967 war 80,000 new refugees were tossed across into Jordan across that bridge um, and there was a, you know, there'd been a, a kind of well publicised operation by the Israelis Operation Refugee to bring back 20,000 nominally Actually, it kind of petered out. They got 14,000 back, and then it kind of ground to a halt. And I think the publicity stunt had sort of, had sufficed to kind of, you know, um, it'd done the trick. Meanwhile, there were 60,000 left there. A lot of them were trying to get back. A lot of them were fighters. So you had a combination of people trying to get back during the daytime. The IDF just shot into the river at them. When they gave up coming back in the daytime, they came at night, and then they kind of shot into the river again. And in the end, the whole, that whole provisional return just petered out. So the bridge for me was a kind of fantastic place of resonance, as you say. Um, but, but I think what, what Adaf and her colleagues did by bringing us in through Allenby was also to show us what it was like to be a Palestinian who wants to go to and fro from the place of exile, i.e. Jordan, into the West Bank, or vice versa, for work or for all kinds of reasons, medical included. Because actually, it it was a cattle pen, and you took your chances. And there we were as sort of pseudo-VIPs, especially those those of us with Western names. Actually, some of the other contributors ran into a bit of trouble. But we were processed slowly, surely. But there were hundreds of residents or people trying to get back or get out to Jordan or back who had to wait hours and they didn't know and you know the, the, the customs immigration could just go well I know it's supposed to close at 6, actually it's 5.30 and we're shutting now you know, that's it, people have to get on the bus and go back have to think about the following day have to think about food provisions overnight, I think all those that is also a kind of static situation isn't it yeah. that's, what, you're, that's mm-hmm. what you mean, it's quite easy to get a hold of there's this kind of human ferment, but at the same time, it is a still situation. It is politically still. Mm. A kind of immobili- immobility has been imposed upon it by mm. the situation, by customs and immigration, mm. by the strategy against residents. So, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a proper eye opener to me because I had I had last been in Palestine during the first Intifada, the anniversary of the first Intifada, which was. Chaos. Mm. I'd been at Nablus, and I'd been in Bethlehem, um, and I'd seen it in a state of uproar, actually. But going back in many, many years later with you, I did find that this was a stillness, and everything had settled down. But it was in many ways so much worse.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is. The more, the more The more solidified and sort of permanent it looks, what is meant to be impermanent, of course, the more yeah. the more dreadful. Um, so, bring it back to Bashir for a moment, and to Issues of writing. Now you've written this brilliant book on the Palestinian novel, and um, you you talk about the revolutionary potential of the text. Yes. And I, I I want to ask you because people often ask me because of fiction, even though I haven't written fiction for seventeen years. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> you can have twenty.
1: <laughs> oh, can I? To Is go by Arundhati? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, then you have to come back with us yeah, anyway. so um, of course with Palestine we have a very very rich literary tradition in Arabic and to my mind most of it doesn't really cross over in translation I mean what is translated of it doesn't quite do it but now with a Second-generation mm. diaspora Palestinians who belong within the West, um, and you know, are therefore the idiom, the culture, the mm. everything is. But we're starting to see. I mean, we're starting to see, um, <coughs> well, poetry, um, yeah. definitely a, a sort of a spoken word, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. a bit of of fiction. And I am just wondering. I mean, there are two. Is it? Would it be the case that the, the literature, the Palestinian literature in Arabic, has had a contribution in keeping alive yeah. this 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 you know this consciousness, this spirit, the fact that the Palestinians won't go away, as it were, mm-hmm. um, or and, and what can we look to um, from things that are written in English, and are we right to look for anything because? Mm. I would still hold on to the idea that if you're writing a poem or if you're writing fiction, then it shouldn't be with an agenda. I mean, obviously, you will write it out of whatever passion you have, but ultimately, its Mm. loyalty is to itself rather Mm. than to a cause. So, I I don't know, in like two minutes. Okay, (laughs) I'll give you one minute.
3: Um, So, I think why I put Janae and Adorno together... Because they invoke different memories, they yeah. invoke different moments. Genet, when he went to Palestine in the early 70s and spent time with the Palestinians, the Palestinians had, had a project to offer. They were part of a larger, more global project
1: sound. Of, of
3: emancipation. Yeah. And, and Jine could just tap into it yeah. as a universal project and could see himself in, in the project and at the same time could see an active process of resistance.
1: This was 1970, yeah. where it was... Still, yeah. So
3: when he went to Jordan, <coughs> mm. this was between Black September and in September, and the last, as it were, evacuation, expulsion of the PLO from, from Jordan at the end of that year, early 71. So, And for him, it was a festival. It was a festival of revolution. It had that, mm. that lightness of touch. It had that potential. It had that innocence. It had the moment before the bureaucratization of, of the PLO, before it was essentially destroyed by Saudi money. There were many things that were happening at that moment. And a lot of Palestinian fiction, what we grew up reading, what people recognize as novels that everybody would point to and say, well, this is a Palestinian. A lot of that was, was written in that period. Yeah. So a lot of it's, whether it's Kanafani or even Jabra Ibrahim Jabra or, or Sahel Kharifi uh, or, or, or Habibi. So it speaks to that moment of emancipation, change, potential, etc. The, the stuff that we, we get now and in a sense, the, the Palfest moment, if you like, um, which is connected also to, to people writing about Palestine, um, the situation has drastically changed. There is there is no Palestinian strategy for liberation. There is no Palestinian liberation movement. Um, it's a very complicated process. There's a lot of Palestinian cynicism amongst the elites. Uh, Oslo has destroyed any semblance of, of the PLO, any potential. So it's a very complicated moment for Janet could just step into an existing movement yeah. and say, well, I support this, and I support their aspirations. They're exactly like mine. The complexity of, the, if you want to call it the Palfest moment or, or solidarity work now, even for Palestinians who live outside and look at occupied Palestine and, and want to engage with it, is, is how do you bridge that gap? How do you measure that distance when there's nothing that you can, or very little, mm. not nothing. Very little that you can tap into and, and join. Mm. And I think that's the complexity of, of solidarity work now. It's much more, I think it's much more difficult, but, all, but hence much more important to be able to see through all the problems that Palestine presents, whether the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, whether it's the, mm. the factionalism, mm. whether it's the division between Gaza and the West Bank, whether it's Oslo. <laughs> where is this Palestine that, that one can mm. aspire towards politically and, and, and join? And I think that's the way part of the, some of the pieces that resolve this problem are, 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 are compelling ways. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody faces that, whether it's the outsider coming in, trying to connect with that Palestine, or it's the Palestinian who was born in, in America and is trying to write a novel about Palestine. Mm-hmm. You have to measure, be able to measure that distance. And it's a very difficult thing to do. I,
1: I, yeah. I don't
3: envy people who try, who sit in New York and try to write a novel or a Palestinian novel out of Brooklyn. I don't envy them. I think it's very difficult. No, no. Yeah. They're very successful. I
1: think that you that know. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think you're completely right. But I do think, that when you say there is nothing to connect, you're you're right. But in fact, what there is to connect with is much more visible and much more felt when you're there, because because when you're there, you see how all the young people are fed up yeah. with both the Palestinian Authority yes. and with Hamas. And what they want is they want some kind of unified leadership. And what they want, actually, and what they keep talking about and trying to make happen, but it hasn't quite happened yet, is to create something like a contemporary PLO, a body that represents the Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, the Palestinians within Israel, and the Palestinians in the diaspora, and can speak for all of them, and that it would be out of out of such such a body such mm. a representation yep. that a real and viable policy yep. could appear but meanwhile of course i mean the the one unified <coughs> thing really is the call to bds which mm. is you know what palestinian civil society put out in mm. 2004, and and uh, which is um, in a, a very very uh, thoughtful and very nuanced actually tool as as you mentioned. So I'm not going to proselytize for it here, but um, but it's really really worth looking up. And obviously, we'll be happy to answer questions. Um, about it, if anybody has them. I'm going to open the floor now if anybody has comments, questions, anything, a poem, anything at all that you want to... A mime. Um, ...come up with. A mime, yes. A rucksack that you want to put in the middle of the floor. And But, so, as you're gathering your thoughts, I will just tell you about a review that appeared today of uh, this book. We're hoping for reviews, of course, but anthologies are hard to... I mean, Editors don't very often give them space. But this review came out today in uh, Mada Masr, that's M-A-D-A-M-A-S-R. And that is a website, it's uh, a a very, very uh, credible, important, young and radical news website that comes out of Egypt, and that is now one, it was the first one that um, over the last three days the regime in Egypt blocked um, we now have 62. As of this morning, the Egyptian regime has blocked 62 news websites. Mm. But Meda Masra is one of them, and they have found ways of still uh, being out there. And there's a review in it of of this book and others, and they <clears throat> call it passionate, ramshackle, strange, and funny volume, which I <laughs> think is lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sounds like the power base yeah absolutely so um yeah okay, your turn yes, absolutely please on the left
2: um, are, are you in touch with the um, olive tree uh, charity from City University
0: because
2: they do writing courses and and they've had a lot of experience for many years right and I think it would be interest you know I could I could put you in touch if you like
1: uh, thank you yeah right. that would be yes yeah. you are. Okay, uh, that would be great. What we, um, I mean, obviously, it's very good to be in touch with people who do the, you know, sort of like really relate, related things. Um, so, so yes, but but another thing is that it's really good to have lots of people doing, doing lots of things as well. So yeah, but yes, please do. Absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, okay, there are one, two, three,
4: four. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for a very interesting panel. Um, My question was just whether you could explain the title a little bit. This is not a border, just say a bit about that, and also how you chose your contributors. I think you said there were 48, but how you, you know, chose them and, yeah, just a bit about that would be really interesting.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, Do you want to, just, shall we just take lots and, yeah? Who was to? Here. Just a wider question, Bashir said something,
0: you said something about, you know, Palestine's always had a lot of friends abroad, one way or another. Thinking about acts of solidarity, have we really made any difference? I think Palestinians have been incredibly gracious always, and and obviously pleased to have the links and solidarity. But I feel under the surface, some of them would like to ask us, why haven't you made, over these decades, you're empowered people in your own society. Why haven't you influenced the moral climate in your own countries, which has shaped this? Um, You know, you've been nice people, but
2: perhaps you've been fairly useless. I just wonder if you comment
1: on that. <laughs> and at the back? Two at the
2: back? Um, about four months ago, the MLA, that's the Modern Language Association of America, um, uh, balloted its members to see if they agreed or would agree with a, a cultural boycott of um, Israeli universities. And um, the, the result of the ballot... Regrettably, was that uh, most people rejected that idea because they said that the intellectuals were one hope that the Palestinians had of um, finding their getting their rights. Now, I contributed to this um, in writing. They didn't actually put my contribution on the um, on their summary. But uh, I, I I I taught in South Africa at the University of Waterstrand in 1974, and um, I must say, the the um, resistance to apartheid was pretty supine, and I don't think that the intellectuals or the academics <laughs> had much effect on, um, on on the ending of apartheid in South Africa. It was, it was the boycott, as you said. Yeah. Um, now, I'd, I'd just be interested to know what uh, the, what the panel thinks. Um, about this this question of whether the uh, what what is the contribution of of Israeli academics to Palestinian freedom? Mm.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. And the last one back there, yeah.
2: Yes, I simply wanted to ask. Jer- well, first of all, thank you for the presentations and thank you for what you're doing. But I just want to ask Jeremy what you said when the young person put up two people put up their hands. One, do you take responsibility for Balfour? <laughs>
1: And two, why have we had to take responsibility or be landed with the results of the Shoah or the Holocaust? Mm. I just would love to sort of eavesdrop on that. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's let Jeremy go first on yep. this. That's a straightforward...
0: Fortunately, on the second point, the question was answered by my colleague, Robin yassin um, <laughs> <laughs> who took the view that... Um, um, it was a terrible political misfortune and a sin <coughs> boring on a crime to visit uh, the, um, you know, the misdemeanors and crimes of Europe on, on Mandate Palestine um, and that um, we shouldn't get into a discussion about the veracity or not of the final solution because that would perhaps be another possible way to take one's anger about Jewish settlement in Palestine would be to, would be. <laughs> Let's not go into the area of denial mm-hmm. where there is the possibility that one is. But so they angry. weren't
1: suggesting denial, anyway. No, no. I mean that was yeah.
0: The second, the first point, um, I answered by saying I feel responsibility for it, but it was nineteen seventeen, so I was powerless then to affect <laughs> it. Um, but I well, Jeremy. <laughs> but I sympathize with the um, uh, you know with with the remark put to a british citizen subject sorry we are subjects um, um, yeah, we do bear a historic responsibility for it, and what are we doing about it that's the good question that you've put
1: well you, you know what I mean I think i, I I mean, England is, or Britain, is one of the countries that are, where people are most active in the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And I think people are very, very aware of that. Um, and, And so, whether people show solidarity because of a sense of the great injustice that's being done somewhere across the world, or because they have an awareness of Britain's colonial past, whichever it is. It is, it is a solidarity that is needed and that is welcome. Um, and then, of course, people who say, well, you know, what is it with you know, I mean, I, I'm tired of feeling, being made to feel guilty, that's all in the past. Well, okay, fine, that's, that's their um, attitude and you're, you know, probably not going to change it. And And... There we are. So if I could, I know that this question was addressed to Bashir, and I'm going to let him answer it. But I do want to say that actually, I don't think it's true that I know exactly what you're saying about have we made a difference. And we're always asking ourselves that. I mean, I, I will say without wanting to sound at all grandiose, that I've been an activist on this issue for 17 years, and everything has gotten worse. You know, not Meaning that I could have made it better, but meaning that it is very possible to lose heart, but I think that we don 't know how fast the process would have gotten worse and worse and worse if it hadn't been for the kind of like a bit of a breaking power of, of what is happening outside in the world and I think that the sense of the sense of the, the sort of the, the, the war the, the battle for the hearts and minds the sense that that has been has been one, that you can have sort of thousands of people coming out for Palestine, that you can have all those hundreds and hundreds of young Jewish people in New York demonstrating in front of the APAC convention mm-hmm. uh, last month. I think that is all tremendously important. And I think, it make a I think it does make a difference. It certainly makes a difference to people's feelings <clears throat> and people's perception of themselves as they resist what is being done to them and i think it does help them to carry on resisting and i think that i think that if you believe in if you believe at all in in public opinion and in sort of something like what the spirit of the age permits and doesn't permit then you just have to put your your hopes in that because otherwise what do you do it's very hard and i was just telling my colleagues a story about Ray, um, a friend in, in uh, Jerusalem who is with the UN and who's been with the UN for 20 years. He took me around in 2003 um, and he continues to take Palfest on a tour of Jerusalem to show us what's been happening. And the last time he said to us that one of the places, one of the places that he always used to stop and take people in and show them like the view and, and where lines were being drawn and so on was a, was a convent and the last time he went there the mother superior had said to him i don't want to see you again you've been coming here for 10 years and you've been bringing people and you've been talking and they've been talking and everything gets worse and we are tired of this and don't come back so that is a kind of that is the kind of reaction that you were thinking of but i i sort of think that that almost that it isn't our place to ask whether we're making a difference, that you have a position and that position Mm -hmm. is the right one and you are honor-bound to carry on acting in that position and to hope that it will make a difference. And when things change, they change quickly. So things can grow very, very, very slowly and then there comes a moment when a big change happens. And that is what we have to hold on to, I think. Um, So, yeah. Um, On the uh, issue of the title and the contributions, the title This is Not a Border is because when you're traveling in Palestine and starting from when you go in uh, over Allenby, you're constantly faced with obstruction. You're constantly faced with checkpoints. Or, I mean, when I was coming out this time, as I was driving from uh, Ramallah to Allenby again, A journey that should have taken 40 minutes took three and a half hours because at two places along this straight road, um, an Israeli army jeep decided to turn itself into a flying checkpoint. So these two teenage Israeli soldiers were just stopping all the cars. And so basically I made it, but other people didn't. So And once when I was with my UN friend and we were stopped and he was like, this is not a border. Why are you stopping us here? Is this an international border? Um, And so, not so often. I mean, you're within the West Bank, and so these checkpoints and the wall and the barbed wire is not even between Israel and the 48 and the territory occupied in 67. It is within the West Bank. So you're constantly coming up against these things where, you know, you say this is not a border, and, and... and also, I mean, the dream when to go to a little hobby horse with the Egyptian Revolution 2011. I mean, one of, the, <laughs> one of the dreams of the young people that just became very, very kind of clear at that point was this issue of borders about sort of like, why should we have borders? So techies across the Arab world were kind of setting up Offices in each liberated capital. I mean, it's horrible what has happened to them now, Damascus, uh, um, you know, Troblos uh, Cairo, to say that um, that we want a world without borders kind of thing. So this is not a border kind of speaks, speaks to that. And the contributors, it was very hard. It was really, really hard because there are 150 people who have been on Palfest. That's not counting our Palestinian hosts so but you you couldn 't have one hundred and fifty uh, contributors, so it was between sort of like trying to find people whose name would matter on a book whose names would sell books um, and finding people who would be a surprise to to the readers um, or people who had written already amazing like the article. The article by Adam Foles, for example, is absolutely stunning, and the article by China Mayville. And so we wanted those, so we just sort of asked for the rights uh, yeah. to 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 print them. So it was, you know, it was just kind of like your normal selection process um, for 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 a book. Um, does anyone? Yeah, would you?
3: Do you want me to take the question on There's Israel, is there... on Israeli intellectuals?
1: Oh, the Israeli intellectuals. Do you... Okay. Well, you go me, ahead
4: and then you, I'll say then something. Me, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So, so just so, so two things Emily. Yeah, yeah, two things about that. I mean, um in terms just quickly dealing with the South African example, what what was your discipline? What were you teaching at this? English literature. Sorry, is that what you Yeah, okay. Well, maybe if you'd been I mean, no disrespect, that's also my discipline as well. Um but first of all, it was it was post ravonia as you know, everything had been smashed at, what the, the situation was very bleak. A lot of sort of intellectual capital, if you like, had come, indeed was in this very city and other, and other parts of the world. Um, and also what was then the Vidvatist was quite a different political and intellectual place than even the Western Cape at that time. And probably, um, as we now can tell from books that are on the shelves around here, a lot of the intellectual resistance came from people who were in the law. Um, and particularly who were interested in or, or who were dedicated to human rights law, so there might have been some disciplinary issues uh, uh, just as there are now, like we can see that, that some there are some brilliant Israeli intellectuals who, who are very, very resistant They're coming from science, really, really important voices coming from science. Um, on the point of uh, before I'd have a response to that. On the point of of the MLA decision, I'm just going to reflect back on what our responsibilities are in terms of the BDS movement—to be nimble and responsive, and to think about different forms and strategies of policy—and just a reminder that we, that, and you know, I'm quite well positioned to say this. You know, the South African cultural and economic boycott was tough, and it was clear. Right, this boycott in BDS is is very. I call it the cuddly boycott, which is why I find it hilarious that people get so uptight about it, because this is a boycott of institutions, not individuals, which allows, a, you know, a space for, for ad hoc choices, for, for calibrations. And in that regard, it's quite, you know, it's, it, it, it can produce results like that as well. So I'm not suggesting that that position needs to be reconsidered. But what I am saying is that we also look to ourselves in terms of what our policies and our strategies are and how we define, you know, what the boycott is and how, and how it operates, particularly at the moment in terms of how, how absolutely, you know, it's, it's now really, really full on as we now have a, a whole ministry... Israel dedicated to opposing it. Yeah, I think you're completely right. I mean, I think that a measure measure
1: of how important the BDS movement is, is that that they have a ministry devoted to it, and they have a huge budget, and it is being spoken of. I mean, as you know, of course, Israel has been desperate to get uh, somebody to go to war with Iran and um so and, and and BDS is listed along with Iran as the two gravest dangers threatening threatening Israel and so that that's a measure of of its importance i of course it's a setback when the mla votes to not adopt bds but it will come back and it will be voted on again i mean there is a a a, a battle going on and it's going on very much in this country where Where a lot, a lot, a lot of organizations, particularly academic, cultural, even city, church, have um, supported BDS. And now, of course, we see a tremendous backlash by the Israeli state, which approaches each university that's about to set up an event to say, on health and safety basis, you should not have this event because something might happen and people might get offended and feelings might be hurt. And, and one that is actually in motion right now, and I would urge you to take a look at it, is that on the 8th and the 9th of uh, July, in Westminster, in the Queen Elizabeth uh, Hall in Westminster, there's going to be a massive, and for the first time ever, a big, big fair called PAL Expo. Mm. Um, they've got the hall for two days, for the weekend, and they've got um, events, they've got stuff for kids, they've got sort of uh, like uh, selling uh, food and stuff, and uh, they've got some really big speakers, including someone like Ilan Pape, and so on. And now, um, there is an organization, like it's an organization within Parliament, within Labour, that is actually uh, I mean, sadly, I, I obviously vote yeah, Labour, Labour, but movement. Jewish, yeah, Jewish Labour movement that is actually trying to to stop them and is trying to get Westminster to um, yeah. to rescind their their hiring of of the whole. Um, and so you know there's talk of going to court and so on. So this is this is happening all the time. It's a battle. What. What gets refused today will come back um, tomorrow. So it's really... And you're completely right, of course, that the boycott and divestment is really important. The economy matters. And when uh, a city or or a pensions fund divests from companies that are doing business or that are profiting from the occupation, that's really important. But for a country like Israel... The cultural boycott is massively important because Israel's positioning of itself from the beginning has been that it is a beacon of democracy and enlightenment and uh, pluralism in a sea of barbarism and that... So it really matters to them to continue to be considered part of the West, which has oddly found itself in this sea of barbarism, but really, really, it's part of Europe. Mm-hmm. And it's in the Eurovision Song Contest, it's in the European football. It's so when somebody pulls out of an event um, in Israel um, and sort of, you know, active not activates, whatever, um, works according to the cultural boycott, then it's tremendously, tremendously important. And as Rachel said, it's a, it's a really subtle, um, it's not a blunt tool. Yeah, for Naomi Klein, for example, with her last book, she wanted to do, to do a tour of Israel, but she wanted to abide by BDS. Yes. And... Consulting with the, uh, the BDS people who one can reach simply by email, it was possible to set her up with a tour right. in places and in bookshops yep. within Israel that conformed to BDS. So the whole business of it being against communication and it's cutting bridges and so on is, is completely, completely not true. You can, Act out BDS and remain very much within uh, communication and within conversation. So it 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 is important, but it's not going to win every round all the time. And I think we have probably gone over. And I think that unless somebody has a burning yes, there's a burning go. I love burnings. Thank you. It's actually just a very quick remark. I'm coming from a legal background, and uh, so not only is BDS not controversial, it's also important, I think, to note that companies that profit or work in settlements or that benefit from the occupation have a legal obligation to disengage from their activities. So it's not even a boycott. It's an obligation for them to withdraw. It's an obligation for states not to buy settlement products, which are produced through violations of international law. So this is really uncontroversial. I just wanted to make that point. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So thank you all for being here and thank you to the LRB bookshop and thank you to my friends and colleagues and if you come and buy the book we'll sign it.
2: <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk/events.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of
3: Pretty Litter.